Um, so bradycardia, basically our normal, our normal heart rate is in anywhere in the range of 60 to 100. So when we say brady, meaning slow heart rate, um, we're dropping down less than 60. Uh, now, frequently that is not a problem until we start to get less than that. And in, in many athletes, actually my heart rate is in the 50s. I'm not a, a toned athlete, trust me, but many, of, many athletes um, and many of you may have heart rates that are in the uh, 50s. People do a lot of um, uh, working out and aerobic exercising. So basically it comes down to what are signs and symptoms of poor perfusion caused by the bradycardia. Okay, um, if we have ad adequate perfusion, we're not going to be really given stuff if, we, if, we're, if we're doing okay. Problem is when we have poor perfusion, then, the, then we need to consider sort of our sequence of, of events and that's what we're going to sort of talk about. Um, and there's just this little thing, this goes along when we talked about with the, um, the uh, cardiac arrest algorithms, basically. Um, if pulses arrest develops, go to the pulses arrest algorithm, search for what we used to call the five H's and five T's, but they've added some, so it's not exactly that anymore. Um, but search for these reasons that may be causing the patient to, to develop this problem. Okay, so now into our intervention, intervention sequence. Basically, our treatment of choice, if we need to do something, is uh, trans, transcutaneous pacing, okay? Um, especially... Um, if we have a high degree block, which you guys will get to when you talk about your uh, EKGs. Uh, in the interim, we can be using atropine, okay, or, you know, if, if our pacing is not uh, functional, if there's a problem with that. Um, so we consider atropine. Remember we talked about atropine, there's a funny thing that happens with the dosing. So we use point f at least 0.5 milligrams as our dose, and we can give this every three to five minutes because it doesn't last very long, okay, up to three milligrams. If this is ineffective and we haven't begun pacing, then we will start pacing. Uh, if this doesn't work, then we can uh, use um, uh, infusions of our sympathetic drugs or adrenergic drugs, okay? Things like epinephrine, which are going to have beta effects, okay? Or dopamine, which is also going to have beta effects. I remember we said, what were, the, what were the primary effects of stimulation of beta-1 receptors of the last two sessions? Increased heart rate, okay, and that's exactly what we're going to do in this situation. So we want those beta-1 effects. What other things do they do? In, 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 when it's positive, it, it increases contractility, okay, positive inotropic effect. Um, and then what's the third thing? We're not really, we don't really want to happen now, but increased automaticity, okay. Okay, so atropine. It increases the rate of SA node discharge, okay, so it sort of increases that... Uh, um, accelerates that, that, those rates of, uh, of impulses that are generated, improves AV node conduction, so our second node um, in, improves a conduction uh, um, at that AV site, and then also um, in, in patients that have asystole, okay, um, there is some uh, thought that it may help restore cardiac rhythm, so we do use it in that um, uh, cardiac arrest situation also, even though we have no rhythm. <clears throat> So we use it for symptomatic bradycardia, okay, asymptomatic bradycardia, we're just going to be monitoring and observing the patient. Symptomatic, we're going to be doing some treatment, okay. So atropine, symptomatic bradycardia, we can use it for pulseless electrical activity for that cardiac arrest algorithm if we have a slow rate associated with that, and then also for asystole, which we just mentioned. Uh, things we need to be careful with, we actually get an opposite effect if we uh, give two small of a dose in adult patients. So uh, doses less than 0.5 milligrams in adult patients, um, we can see a parasympathomimetic effect, okay? Instead of uh, um, an uh, anticholinergic effect, we get sort of a cholinergic response with atropine. And we actually can slow the rate down. So don't give less than, don't give 0.25 in someone that has symptomatic bradycardia if you're using atropine. Give 0.5 as your starting dose, okay? 0.5 milligram is your starting dose. You give lower doses than that with bradycardia and you get a slower rate and you end off in a, in a worse situation. Since it does increase that heart rate, it can increase myocardial oxygen demand. Anything that gets that heart jacked up and, and increasing the rate or force a contraction may increase your myocardial oxygen demand. So in patients that have blockages in their heart, coronary art, what we call coronary artery disease, um, that may be a complication that can arise. Patients can develop chest pain if, they, uh, if their rate increases too dramatically. 
And then we uh, don't routinely, there's uh, no indication to use it for VTAC and VFib. And then like I said earlier, in cardiac transplant patients, uh, atropine really is not going to have an effect in these patients because they've had their vagal nerve cut. Um, over time there may be re of this, but um, acutely and for years after that, it's, uh, they're not going to have any response to the atropine, okay? other than side effects that they would get from uh, uh, atropine, the anticholinergic effects. So what is our dosing we use? For our cardiac arrest algorithms, our dosing is uh, for asystole and PEA specifically, since we don't use it for pulses, VTAC, and VFib. It's uh, one milligram every three to five minutes, okay? With a, we stop once we get at three milligrams. Um, for bradycardia, okay, for symptomatic bradycardia, our dose is 0.5 milligrams. Again, we have to repeat this rapidly, or we can repeat it rapidly if needed uh, for bradycardia if the patient's uh, rate begins to drop 0.5 milligrams every three to five minutes with a max dose of three milligrams. And a complete vagolytic dose that we typically see is around 0.04 milligram per kilogram. Okay, and this will be important in patients that may have been exposed to organophosphate pesticides, which we talked about. Um, and they will require large doses. These patients will require very large doses. I went to it. What's vagal Remember talking about the vagal nerve? That's what innervates the the parasympathetic system. Um, so uh, I went to a meeting uh, oh two years ago, and they uh, it was a, <coughs> talking about a patient that had been exposed to a massive organophosphate um, pesticide uh, exposure error. And they showed, uh, they had an example of the amount of atropine they had to give to this patient for the patient's course. And the patient, I think, ended up expiring. But they had a table, and they had these vials, not the, the abojects like we'll be using that have one milligram per 10 mils. But they had a table, and it was heaped up with the vials of atropine that this patient required over their course, over the several days that they're in the hospital. Um, like I said, we'll be giving them other things in the hospital, not that you will have, to sort of help with that enzyme that's being um, attacked or not allowing to function to break down the acetylcholine. Um, but we don't have those readily in our kit. They are uh, in the uh, military's uh, 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 packs that they use. They have, they have combined what they call Mark I injectors, and actually have another name for them now. But uh, they have atropine and, and protopam in those to help restore that enzyme. Um, we'll just, we're just going to have atropine to use in these situations, but you may be giving large doses of atropine, okay? Uh, we, in our hospital, for instance, I'm not sure that we had that much atropine total to give to a single patient. Of course, they probably didn't either and had to order a lot in over the course of the patients. So that's just a single patient, though. Um, so they can take a lot of atropine to reverse those effects, okay? Okay, now to dopamine. Dopamine is another agent that we can use for, uh, which we'd mentioned, which we can use for symptomatic bradycardia when we're talking about medications. Okay, it's a precursor of epinephrine. Okay, and we already mentioned that it will stimulate alpha and beta receptors, and this happens at different dosages, which we mentioned we'll review also. In addition, it also affects the <coughs> dopaminergic receptors. Okay. We said this is important because this, this can hold a large amount of our um, cardiac output. So when we, when we stimulate these dopaminergic receptors, it dilates these renal and mesenteric uh, uh, vessels. Okay. However, when we start to use higher doses, then we start to get vasoconstriction and we override this effect because okay, we start to squeeze, constrict uh, the vessels. Okay. And then we see an increase in blood pressure. So with dopamine, we typically never always titrate to zero, remember? Because we go down, we get low, and we start to, we, we lose our, our beta effects, and we no longer have any alpha effects because we're at that low dose. Now we're stimulating those dopamine, those dopamine receptors, and we start to dilate, okay? We start to dilate in here. We start to dilate, the blood pressure drops. That's why we cannot titrate uh, completely to zero with uh, dopamine. So high dose, okay, usually greater than 10 mics per kilo per minute, is where we see the alpha effects with dopamine, okay? We won't really be using that dose, obviously, when we're dealing with uh, bradycardia. So you may start with a higher dose in someone that has hypotension, okay? Uh, some, many people suggest starting at 10 mics per kilo per minute. In the hospital for hypotension, we typically will start at five. Um, 
Now that five mics per kilo per minute is going to be pretty much your beta effects. Okay, as you go up to ten, then you start to get more alpha effects. But starting at five is predominantly beta effects. So this is probably the doses um, that you're going to be starting, um, or maybe uh, slightly lower for patients that have symptomatic bradycardia. So what are our indications that we use this for? Uh, for dopamine, well, we use it for cardiogenic shock, okay, where the heart has been stunned or damaged, uh, typically with an acute myocardial infarction, um, and, the, and, and the heart is not pumping well, okay? It's in shock, so it's just not squeezing well, okay? Giving drugs that have beta-1 effects will hopefully increase that force of contraction. We'll have a positive inotropic effect, okay? And hopefully improve our hemodynamic response. Also, we'll use it for hemodynamically significant uh, hypotension. This will be one of your first um, medications to go to. Okay, we'll do other things first. We may be giving volume, but this will be one of the first medications that you'll actually be giving to help increase blood pressure. Okay, people that have a low blood pressure. Also for heart failure, we'll occasionally use it for heart failure. Uh, not real common with that anymore, uh, with the development of some newer drugs that are probably more specific to the inotropic effects of the beta-1 receptors uh, in the heart. Um, but it still can be used for that because, again, those, when it stimulates beta-1 receptors, it's going to increase not only the heart rate, but it's going to increase that force of contraction. Okay? So it would be an agent to, uh, to use if you didn't have another uh, class of medicine, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Obviously, we only give this IV. Um, the, whole, the whole range of dosing is anywhere from uh, 2 to 20 mics per kilo per minute. We don't routinely go above 20 mics per kilo per minute because you really don't get much more of effect with the drug. Um, if we have to get that high, then we, then we will add another medication. Um, and this morning, we have several patients that are on uh, high-dose dopamine and have had norepinephrine, um, another agent which we've mentioned already, uh, for shock, and then vasopressin, um, another medicine which we mentioned briefly f used for PUSH, pulses VTAC and VFib, and mentioned that it also can be used for sepsis. We have a patient who's septic right now in the ICU requiring this because uh, the response to the other catecholamines, uh, adrenergic agents, was not sufficient to s help basically support them. So we have the vasopressin, um, which helped also uh, increase their blood pressure even more into a more acceptable range. Um, and then we're basically, uh, once patients stabilize and hopefully starts to improve, then, we, we, then, we, then we'll bring those agents off as tolerated. Okay. So basically we're using dopamine. Uh, <clears throat> we'll titrate this. If we're using it for, for heart rate, obviously to increase our heart rate, but you always have to keep in mind that you got to watch the blood pressure too, okay? Because you will increase blood pressure with this agent, okay? Um, and also, and the other thing is, if you're using it for um, blood pressure, you have to keep you have to keep in mind what's your heart rate, okay? So you got a heart rate of 180. That's probably probably not a good heart rate, okay? And dopamine will increase your heart rate, okay? That's one. That's an example we talked in ICU this morning on rounds. We had a patient um, that got started on a medication, one of the one of our catecholamines that stimulates beta one receptors. And we talked about well, an alternative is going to be something that doesn't that that doesn't do that. So something that's devoid of beta one effects. Okay, something like phenylephrine, okay, or vasopressin. Okay, these have no beta one effects. It's not going to drive that heart rate faster. So there's all different kinds of things that we sort of mess around with in terms of these receptors. Okay, different drugs, different drugs respond differently in terms of some of them with dosages, some of it, the ratio in terms of alpha to beta effects stays the same. Dopamine, it changes. Epinephrine, it actually will change. Okay. So we titrate these, titrate these drugs to clinical response. Things we need to be careful with, okay, like I said, we need to be on top of our blood pressure. Okay, we can go too far the other way. Okay. Sometimes we'll very rarely we'll see patients that have certain conditions that, um, uh, or maybe take certain medications that can uh, interact and cause dramatic elevations in blood pressure. Okay. Um, uh, we'll see that, and it's, sometimes people have certain types of tumors, uh, pheochromocytomas, where they actually will secrete at different times, especially under stress, their own catecholamines, and then they got these huge amounts in their body then they get the effects of that, okay? They get profound uh, hypertension, blood pressure 200, okay, on their own. 
we had a patient transfer last year that was like that, was in the uh, OR in Cedar Rapids. Uh, can't remember specifically what happened, it was what type of surgery. Anyways, became hypotensive. Starbon meds became profoundly hypertensive almost immediately. It transferred to us. Um, patient was hypertensive when she got here. Didn't quite, couldn't figure out the picture. Ended up the patient had a pheochromocytoma, okay? Had a tumor which secretes uh, catecholamines, okay? And so we ended up giving her things by the time she got to us, even though she had initially had a drop in blood pressure, probably associated with meds she got in, uh, from anesthesia. Um, we had to give her things to help block her alpha, predominantly alpha, but also her beta receptors, okay? Uh, uh, because her body was secreting all this. And then basically what they do once the patient's stabilized, they'll take this tumor out, okay? And then that'll, then that'll help uh, cure that problem. But you won't know, and she didn't know when she had that. She had no idea she had that, okay? She was a gal in her 30s, had no idea, no, had no idea she had a problem with the blood pressure or that it went up and down. No idea, okay? And that, that stuff's going to happen. That's why you need to be on top of the blood pressure and heart rate in these patients that you're giving these type of medications to, okay? Because we can have just as bad as things or worse things happen when we have these huge blood pressures, okay? So you can cause a, you can cause a, a detrimental uh, uh, problem by not uh, monitoring that. Okay, fallen blood pressure. We said we can't, we can't go all the way to zero with dopamine because we start to actually dilate when we get too low, okay? So after we get to about two to three mics per kilo per minute, we start to see that blood pressure start to drop when we go, and we, then we just shut it off, okay? Arrhythmias, again, it stimulates beta-1 receptors. Anything that stimulates beta-1 is gonna increase automaticity and increase your risk of arrhythmias both atrial and ventricular, okay? Um, and this is, this is uh, not uncommon. They had a patient, that did not to say this has uh, happened to this patient, but patient was started on an uh, agent last night that beta-1 beta agonist developed no, no prior history, but needed that for basically hemodynamic support, but then b developed VTAC and had a, had a cardiac arrest after that VTAC and went into asystole. Okay, so these, these agents, even though you're using them for certain things, can cause you to have problems, okay? So you're giving it for, you're giving it for symptomatic bradycardia, and yeah, it'll stimulate those beta-1 receptors, but it can also cause enough stimulation to have the patient go into VTAC. Now you've got a much worse problem, okay, that you have to assess and, and uh, deal with. So it's just one thing to sort of keep in back of your mind, okay? been to situations where patients maybe have heart failure and we're using dibutamine, some type of beta-1 uh, agonist, and they, they go into VTAC, well, one thing we need to consider is, well, are we giving things that can cause that? And we need to get rid of that, okay, acutely. Hopefully that will help our situation. Okay. Nausea and vomiting does occur with a certain percentage of patients that will get dopamine, just a side effect that uh, it's... it's uh, not uh, that uncommon with dopamine administration. Extravasation, we have to be careful with that because we remember we said that when we stimulate those alpha receptors with a drug, that we cause vasoconstriction, so we don't have a good line. We get that fluid into the tissue, we're gonna cause vasoconstriction, we can cause a lot of damage, okay? So always make sure you have a, a good line when you're administering these agents. Monoamine oxidase inhibitors, it's a, it's a very old class of uh, anti-psych um, meds, basically, de depression meds. Um, not really used very much anymore unless patients have failed other therapies with like what we call SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, Soloft. Those are pretty safe agents. We use those now. If they don't respond to that, we may use what's called tricyclic antidepressants, and we'll talk about those a little bit. Um, and then if they don't respond to that, uh, there's other agents, but they may use an MAOI, okay, or monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And these, these drugs, when we give these with uh, uh, catecholamines, we get huge increases in blood pressure, okay? Uh, so you won't see it very often. These patients can't even eat certain cheeses, they can't drink certain wines, because they'll get the same effect, okay, with this, these medications. Sausages and stuff like that are made with certain uh, ingredients. They can't, they, anything that can contains tyramine they can get trouble with. And then if your patient has a known field chromocytoma, that's going to be trouble whenever we're giving a catecholamine, okay? Because we're going we're, we're to give them a drug that will increase that uh,
um, response, okay, and, and that may, you may result with a, a huge response on top of that because of what this tumor can excrete. Okay, epinephrine. We already talked about epinephrine for <coughs> pulses VTAC and VFib, okay. Now we're talking about in cardiac other other cardiac arrest uh, indications. Now we're talking about for um, uh, bradycardia. So typically, how we'll make it, we'll just take one milligram. Usually, use like one of your Abojects that already has a needle on it. Put one milligram in a 500 mil bag. Okay. And then you run the rate anywhere from two to ten mics, two to ten mics per minute. Okay. We don't. We won't. For for easy figuring, we're not going to do this based on weight. Okay. Typically, when they get in the hospital, we run epinephrine on rate. Um, but we're not going to do that in this situation. And then we'll control um, blood or uh, heart rate based on that. You don't routinely ever, it's not common to get to epinephrine. Usually patients are going to respond to dopamine, okay, if, you, if atropine is, is, is uh, failed, okay, and you're, for whatever reason you can't do uh, pacing, okay. <clears throat> Isoproteranol, we don't really, it's not really in our algorithm anymore for bradycardia, but this is sort of a spot I want to talk about this. It's a man-made drug, and unlike um, epinephrine and dopamine, um, we have those in our body and produced in our body. Atropine, we don't. We make that. But isoproteranol is also, a, it's, 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 it's exclusively the only beta, pure beta agonist that there is, okay? Has absolutely no alpha effect at all, okay? Isoproteranol or isoprel is the brand name. Okay. Stimulates both beta 1 and beta 2 receptors. So since it's going to stimulate those beta 1 receptors, we said it's going to have a positive inotropic effect. Very strong inotropic effect. Okay. Increases that force of contraction. Also very strong chronotropic effect. So it's going to increase that rate. Okay. Make that rate go faster. So what is it actually, what, what happens when we give isoproteranol? Well, since we're going to increase that heart rate and increase that force of contraction, we're going to increase our cardiac output, okay, primarily through our force of contraction. Cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate, okay. So by basically improving both of those, those effects on cardiac output, the stroke volume in terms of the squeeze, okay, and the heart rate, okay, we're going to obviously, improving either one of those are going to improve our cardiac output. Problem with that is, we improve that cardiac output, make that heart work harder, what happens? Well, we increase our, our myocardial cardiooxygen demand, okay, how much we need. So when patients have blockages in those arteries that can't get enough fuel through there, the oxygen in the blood through to that tissue, they're going to starve and they're going to get, a, they're going to get chest pain, okay, ischemic chest pain. In addition, remember you said, well, wait a second, Hobbs, I thought beta-2s, beta-2s actually dilated those arterioles, okay, and I thought, in addition to uh, causing bronchodilation in the lungs, we, always, we also had that effect, and that is true. So what you can actually see with isoproteranol, and it's routinely why we don't use it in, in patients that are uh, as an agent for hypotension, okay, for just for specific to that is because you can actually see the diastolic and mean blood pressure drop, okay, but the systolic pressure is usually maintained, okay, um, because of your increase in cardiac output, okay, so that increase in heart rate and that increase in force of contraction keep your cardiac output up, your systolic maintains, but actually your, your, your mean pressure, okay, because your diastolic pressure is dropping, well, uh, those will both decline when we give isoproteranol. So isoproteranol is not going to be an agent that we're going to use for patients that have uh, 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 hemodynamically significant uh, hypotension, okay? We're going to be using other agents other than that. So when do we, when do we, when do we use isoproteranol? Well, remember we said that heart transplant patients have that vagal nerve cut, so there, there is no Though there's no parasympathetic action going on with the heart in terms of uh, response for heart rate, okay? So they routinely have this new heart put in 
and they will almost uh, as routinely require some support for this because otherwise that is not going to be stimulated enough and what we give to do that we give a beta-1 agonist being isoproteranol being the only one that's a beta-1 true beta-1 and also beta-2 we're not too concerned with that agonist that's the agent we're going to choose okay in these heart transplant patients okay so it's going to increase that force of contraction okay and typically we're concerned with that because that is frequently weak after we put the new heart in okay so it helps keep up that force of contraction but also helps keep that heart rate up and typically that heart rate will be low okay uh, for a while and sometimes patients will even require a pacer before they leave the hospital with a heart transplant just to keep that heart rate up many times it, many, many times their body will 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 um, compensate and will be and they'll have a sufficient heart rate um, through their own release of chemicals in their body to stimulate that heart rate and, and stimulate that force of contraction. But until that happens, usually uh, over a week, we have patients on isoproteranol and then we'll taper that off. Okay. So that'd be an indication that we'll see isoproteranol used. That's, a, that's sort of a temporary indication only. It used to be also in the algorithms for, and this would, and, and many, many uh, kits don't have this now, but we use, also use it for um, sort of a chemical pacing when we couldn't do um, uh, mechanical pacing uh, in patients that required that. Uh, and I'm uh, thinking specifically with uh, torsade uh, de poids uh, arrhythmia, okay, when we can actually pace that, okay. So uh, I was in a code in Las Vegas when I worked at University Medical Center where, um, for whatever reason, the, the, they couldn't do pacing, okay, and the patient had torsades. They gave mag and mag didn't work. Hooked up the pacer, it's dysfunctional. So then we turned to isoproteranol, okay, and that actually worked. But it's not really in the algorithms anymore, but it used to be used for that also. Okay, so think of isoproteranol, it's going to increase that, that uh, uh, heart rate. So we don't use it in cardiac arrest, okay, there's no indication for that. We don't use it in patients that have hemodynamically significant hypotension. We've already talked about that because actually your mean pressure can fall, okay, due to its effects on those arterioles and, and the diastolic pressure. <clears throat> What's our dose? Similar to what we'd use for epinephrine, basically, okay. We're going to stick a milligram, uh, typically, or two milligrams in a 500 mil bag and then run it at a rate anywhere in the range of 2 to 10 mics per minute. And you usually get pretty good response with that. Okay. So back to our patient over here with poor perfusion, okay, with the slow heart rate, bradycardia. Okay. So we got transcutaneous pacing, okay, especially if we have a uh, um, high degree block. We don't consider atropine. Okay, while you're getting the pacer ready, okay, go up to three milligrams. Remember with atropine or dose, you can't give too small of a dose. Okay, you give too small and you're going to get a paradoxical effect. You're going to drop the heart rate. So when you give an atropine to adult, you give 0.5 milligrams. Okay, if, that's, if that hasn't worked, and you ain't, then you can start pacing. If, you still, if there's an issue with the pacer, you don't have it set up yet, other drugs that you would include in this would be probably dopamine because it's going to be what you're more familiar with, but could also use epinephrine. Okay, and that'll routinely what we see in patients that come in that maybe have not responded or responded poorly to atropine or continuous use. They'll be on dopamine frequently. Okay, for heart rate. Okay, very rarely, and I could probably count on one hand. Can I count on the amount of times that patients have come in on epinephrine just for that specific reason? Okay, usually dopamine is going to to, uh, uh, it's going to be adequate. And then prepare for uh, trans, uh, transvenous pacing. Okay, now from going too slow, we're going to go too fast. Okay, tachycardia. We already mentioned 60 100 is normal. Okay, so above 100, we're going to end up with tachycardia. Okay, too fast of a heart rate. Okay. <laughs> Well, we sort of get, we get an EKG, and then what we have to do, we have to c come down here and we have to consider, okay, do we have a wide QRS complex, okay, or do we have a, over here, or do we have a narrow QRS complex, okay? We have to figure out if we're narrow or wide, and then we're going to break that down and talk, to, and talk about our treatment modalities in terms of what we do in that. Then we'll talk about if either one of those are regular versus irregular. And then what we're going to do in terms of uh, uh, medications or potentially other uh, 
mechanisms. Okay, so now we're dealing with Y complex regular rhythm, not irregular, but regular rhythm. Okay, frequently that's going to be ventricular tachycardia. Okay, or you, you, may, you may not know what that is. What are we going to use? Well, we already mentioned with amiodarone, okay, amiodarone is going, to, is going to treat both atrial and ventricular rhythms. Okay, so in that situation, our drug of choice is going to be amiodarone 150 milligrams. Now, as long as, we, as, long as we're not, uh, uh, we, we got a pulse, okay, we're not using our cardiac arrest uh, dosing. This is a different dosing. Our dosing we, we use is 150 milligrams over 10 minutes. And usually in the hospital, what we'll do is we'll put that into a mini bag, okay? Amiodarone can be irritating, cause phlebitis when given IV, okay? So we dilute that out and it helps prevent that. There were, they were for a while uh, testing a different formulation to try to, that sort of got by that, although it still had the, that problem, and I'm not sure if that's ever going to be approved or not. Problem with that is that amiodarone is generic, and if people dilute that, they may not be able to get the market with that. Um, and then uh, there's a maximum dose we give, but usually we'll start an infusion if the patient's having uh, uh, definitely ventricular rhythms, but sometimes even atrial rhythms. We also can use procainamide, although remember we said that was sort of difficult to use um, because when we start to load that, that was a hassle. We started at 20 milligrams a minute, and then we had to, we basically, uh, took a while to give that dose to get a loading dose, okay, if we were going to give over a gram or a maximum being 17 milligram per kilogram, but if we're going to give a gram, it's going to take 50 minutes to just simply load that drug, okay. If we can cause hypotension, widen the QRS, it can cause a lot of problems also, okay, which we had to monitor for. Or cardioversion, okay. However, it doesn't have to be a, a ventricular rhythm, okay. It can be an SVT with aberrancy. But if it is that, then we go to the narrow complex rhythm, okay, for our treatment modality. And that's going to follow through all the way with that, if it is SVT instead of uh, ventricular origin. Now, if it's an irregular rhythm, okay, um, uh, an example of that is going to be torsades, then we're going to use magnesium, okay. And torsades, torsad, just an easy way to remember that, versus monomorphic VTEC, it's a polymorph polymorphic VTEC sort of see something like this, okay. Polymorphic is going to be like this. It's going to be bigger and smaller. And basically, torsade de poem means twisting of the points in French. It's twisting around the isoelectric point, okay? And that's why we see this, where this gets smaller and bigger, smaller and bigger, versus monomorphic VTEC, okay? Have you guys started the EKGs? Yes, sir. So our first line agent, okay, was relatively not toxic agent, um, unless given extremely fast, is magnesium, okay, and our dosage is typically going to be two grams or one to two grams, um, and depending on what we're using it for, over five to sixty minutes, okay. If we're having torsades, we're going to want to get that in quicker. Uh, we're not going to want to give that over sixty minutes, okay. However. Um, if you, you can have, you can have polymorphic VTAC that's, uh, with a normal QT, not a prolonged QT, okay? Magnesium's not going to work in that situation. If you, if you have that, amiodarone's going to be your drug of choice, okay? So amiodarone you're going to find is going to work for a lot of these arrhyth arrhythmia problems, okay? So wide complex irregular rhythm, okay? Pre-excited AFib can be uh, one of the causes of this. Again, we're not going to give AV node blockers. We are going to give AV node blockers in, in some indications, but if we're not sure, we don't want to do that. We can give amiodarone, though. Okay, Amiodarone will, will, will work for the AFib, also work if it's not AFib. Okay? Um, and then if it's AFib with aberrancy, then we're going to go back to our narrow complex irregular rhythm, in which we will be giving calcium channel or beta blockers, uh, AV nodal blockers, to these patients. Okay, now over, and we're going to talk about these agents in more detail. I'm just sort of giving you the overview of, of what we do when we've broken this down into wide versus narrow complex, and then regular versus irregular rhythm. Okay, so narrow complex, regular rhythm, okay, what we'll do is vagal maneuvers, okay, well, we don't, we'll have the patient bear down in the hospital, they may do uh, uh, 
carotid massage. Uh, physicians would do that. Um, and this, by doing this, this may break that reentry circuit and actually have the patient convert to normal sinus rhythm, okay, by simply doing that. It's what we call vagal maneuver, stimulating that, the vagal tone, okay, that vagal nerve by doing that, by bearing down, um, like I said, the or carotid massage physicians would do that in the hospital. Um, adenosine is an agent that we'll use in this situation, okay. And, and the dose of adenosine, we'll talk about adenosine in detail, we'll give an initial six milligrams, okay. Um, and we can repeat that with an additional 12 milligrams followed by another 12 milligrams, okay. Um, if they convert, then it was probably uh, a, a reentry SVT. If they don't convert, okay, then it, uh, it's probably not a reentry rhythm, okay. And it may slow the patient down, it'll slow the heart rate down, but adenosine is so short acting that it's not going to be very effective for very long. It may help you identify the atrial, may, may be able to look at the rhythm a little bit better and identify actually what it is, but it's not going to um, keep that patient out of it, okay, um, out of their atrial arrhythmias. And in that situation, we'll use uh, something that's going to be longer acting, a longer acting AV nodal blocker, like a beta blocker, like metoprolol IV or diltiazem or verapamil. And the same thing happens with um, um, SVT. We can also use uh, uh, our beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, which are just longer acting. Okay? If it is SVT, sometimes just a single or several doses of, of, uh, of adenosine will, will work. Okay. Neurocomplex irregular rhythm is probably going to be atrial fibrillation or atrial fl flutter. Okay? Could be MAT, multifocal atrial tachycardia, but um, uh, the higher percentages with AFib flutter. And what we use with those agents to help control that fast ventricular rate would be calcium channel blockers like diltiazem or verapamil or um, beta blockers. Most routinely we're going to be dealing with IV metoprolol. Okay. So adenosine, also called adenocard, okay. Um, what does it do? Well, it, de it depresses AV and SA node activity, okay, so it can, sl it can slow that down. It doesn't work for rhythms which aren't due to reentry through the AV node um, or the sinus node. Okay, it will still it'll still depress that AV node and it'll slow the heart rate down for a very brief moment, and then you be, may be able to identify the rhythm other than this real quick thing that's going on. Um, but it's not going to convert that. It may convert the SVT though, and the reentry it can sort of break that. It can it'll can acutely block that reentry pathway, and by blocking that acutely, it can sort of stop that from happening. Okay. Um, although that, 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 that path is still there, okay, and that can reoccur. Um, we actually sometimes will use it for a coronary vasodilator. You guys will never use this in, in, in the field, but we'll use this uh, when we uh, test for certain things in the uh, uh, hospital, okay. So we, we want to use that as a coronary, coronary vasodilator for certain indications. Um, and this is usually when you give, we'll give it as an infusion instead of giving this rapid push. Um, Negative chronotropes that slow already it affects the AV node, so it decreases the, the heart rate. Um, and also what we call negative dromotrope. I haven't mentioned this, but this just has to deal with the impulse conduction. Okay? Um, it slows that impulse conduction. Also can cause vasodilation okay? um, when we give this. And we can see that when, we cause, uh, when, it, when it does have its effects on the coronary anatomy. So it terminates reentrant tachycardia is involving the AV node, okay? One thing to remember with this um, that is a little bit different in is that in pa patients that have asthma, we can induce um, uh, bronchoconstriction with this, okay? And that can be a bad thing. So routinely, you, in your history, before you give this medicine to patients, you're going to want to make sure they don't have a history of asthma, okay? They have a history of lung disease. You need to figure out what that is, because if it's asthma, you can you can run into trouble with this. Okay, and actually, I was at a football game. Oh, this is probably maybe ten years ago, and there were some residents that were sitting behind me, and they were they were somewhere, and they gave adenosine to a patient, and the patient started having some bronchoconstriction. Okay, and there's a drug called theophylline, which we which we don't routinely use, but it's an adenosine antagonist. Okay. And the, uh, theophylline has really fallen off in its use. It's, it can be toxic in high levels. Um, 
and it's not real effective. However, since it's an antagonist of, of the adenosine effect, when someone has bronchoconstriction, it's not something you'll have, but we have that's in the hospital, it's going to reverse those effects right away. And these guys were talking, and they, they didn't realize this, but they, they said that, you know, when I give the Theophylline, I'm going to start using this all the time. The response was almost immediate, you know, and they were going to start using this in all their patients. Or they, they you know, said, I, I don't know why we don't use this more often. And we were suggesting that they should do that. And then I turned around and I said, well, you guys got to realize that this is a adenosine antagonist, okay? And it worked specific to do that because it, it went and blocked those receptors. And that's why this bronchoconstriction uh, uh, improved in this patient so rapidly when they gave Theophylline, okay? And, of course, they went and got something to drink. They never came back after that. I'm not quite sure why. But it's just, just to go to show you how, how things can happen where, you know, if people will see something and not really understand the mechanism, the, there's a specific mechanism involved with this and why that would work, okay? And that's, that's true. That, that really did happen over at Kinnick Stadium. <clears throat> thing with adenosine, you know, we talked about amiodarone. I told you that it had a half-life of very long, like 55 days, my favorite, my favorite drug. Adenosine, like some of our short-acting, uh, uh, well, actually, it's, it's even short-acting than our catecholamines, its half-life is 10 seconds. So that means you give a dose. Now, you give a dose push, and guess what? Half of it's, half of it's gone in 10 seconds. That's pretty fast-acting stuff, okay? So when you go to give this, when we, need, when we go to give adenosine, you're giving it push. You're getting the dose in there right now, okay? You go to give that. So IV dose completely gone by minute, okay? Within 30 seconds, we're talking that's completely gone. We usually say five half-lives, about 50 seconds. What's our dose we use? Our dose typically for, uh, um, for an SVT is going to be six milligrams IV push we need to, we can give another 12 milligrams. If we need to, we can give another 12 milligrams. Okay. Now, if it's just slowing down your, if it's just slowing down your rate, then we're probably going to need to consider an alternative. Okay. And I'll give you a perfect example of something I see in the hospital probably about five, six, seven years ago, maybe. Can't remember. It's all, it's all starting to go together. We had a patient that came in. Uh, this patient, let me think about this. Did they have an SVT? I think they had, an, they had an SVT. They did have an SVT. And what was going on, they were given six milligrams. Patient would convert, and they go back into it in minutes. And they give 12, patient would convert, give another 12. This happened over the whole night. They'd given just, just almost like a bucket full of adenosine. Adenosine is not a cheap drug. You're not going to have that much to give in your kids. But they were just kept giving and giving and giving this. And the thing with that is, like we said, adenosine is short-acting, right? We said it's going to half-life of 10 seconds. It's going to be gone in a minute. So they, they get this patient out of it, but this patient will go right back into it, okay? So let's think, what would we do if we want to keep them out longer? Well, what we'd want to do is give them a longer-acting drug, something that's going to work at that site longer and block that AV node. Remember, we said it's going to have it's going to have blocking effects. Well, this well, now we're talking about that reentry pathway. Okay. Well, so what we suggested when we came in says you guys got to give something longer-acting. Why don't you give some IV verapamil, which we're going to talk about? Okay, a calcium channel blocker. Okay, gave a dose of that, and the guy stayed out. Then we start him on oral therapy that day so he could take that at home and he came back uh, within a week and had that reentry circuit ablated where they use radiofrequency ablation and they just burn that so it'll never come back then basically that's cured okay but the problem was they'd used expensive medication multiple doses okay and they just weren't thinking they kept, guy kept going back into it instead of just using a longer acting medicine you could give a dose of rapmel rapmel has a you know a half-life of hours Okay, so its effects are just simply going to last longer, so you don't get that to recur. Okay, so it's something to, that you can remember. That's a, that's a good sort of teaching point. That's something I've seen. Um, wasn't even considered by the residents okay, and the nurses in the hospital where they were kept giving this short-acting expensive drug. It worked for a minute or two, maybe five minutes, and the patient went into it. Gave a lot of drug when they simply could have gave a cheap drug, would have worked for hours. Okay, gave a lot of expensive drug. Okay. So 6, 12, and 12, that's your sequence you need to remember with adenosine. 
Okay, you give six, then you give 12, and then you give 12. If you have adenosine, and you should probably have adenosine, that's going to be your dosing you're going to have in there, enough to give you a, a treatment for that. Okay. Okay, well, what do we have to be careful with? Well, we said it is a coronary vasodilator, so we have to be careful with that. Also, um, we, it uh, does have effects in, detrimental effects in patients with asthma, so we're not going to give it to those patients, okay? It's contraindicated in those patients. Um, it does cause patients to get goofy when we give this, okay? And that'll happen. And the, and the EKG or your strip is going to get pretty crazy when you give this initially also. Okay, sometimes it almost looks like patients have a little strip of asystole when you give this adenosine. Okay, but then the patients typically will uh, uh, convert, but you're going to see uh, uh, funny things when you give adenosine. Drug interactions, things that are going to counteract the effect of adenosine if patients are already taking theophylline. Okay, and guess what? People have more atrial rhythms in people taking theophylline. And we said, well, adenosine's a, or theophylline's an adenosine antagonist. Okay, and this probably is associated with, through some molecular mechanisms, why this happens, okay? Theophylline increases that heart rate, okay? Well, patients that take this are not going to respond as well to that adenosine, okay? So you may need to be pr probably considering using another agent if they're already on theophylline. One, if they're on theophylline, they probably got a lung problem, okay? Not, don't have to have, we use it for other things very rarely, but probably do, okay? So if they have asthma, we shouldn't be using adenosine anyways. If they're on theophylline, we're not going to use that, okay? They block the effects. We give one, then we block the effects. Other interactions, tegretol or carbamazepine, it's, um, oh, it's an anti-seizure medicine. It's not, not uh, a neurology-type medicine. Uh, not real popular, but it's out there, and patients will be taking this. When we give adenosine, what happens is this isn't metabolized as quickly, and we get a longer effect with adenosine, okay? Okay. <clears throat> and also, um, uh, dipritamol is another drug that will prolong the action of adenosine. Okay. And we actually will give dipritamol instead of uh, uh, um, adenosine when we're doing certain types of tests just to sort of elicit a similar response because it affects um, uh, coronary vasodilation. All right. Now we're going to jump over. So we talked about adenosine. Okay, for SVT. Now we're going to talk about verapamil, which is a calcium channel blocker. Okay. Isoptin or Kalin are two different brand names for that. So when can we use it? Well, we can use it for narrow complex SVT, okay, regular rhythm. We, you can, we can use it for AFib or flutter, okay with a rapid ventricular response, with a caveat. We're not going to use it in patients that ha have AFib with RVR, rapid ventricular response or rate, if they have also Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, okay? We'll give them verapamil, we're going to end up with a large problem, okay? A ventricular arrhythmia, okay, or worse. So, commonly used for AFib and flutter for rate control. It won't convert, it won't convert the rhythm, It'll slow the patient down, and the patient may spontaneously convert with that slower heart rate, but it will slow the rate down and improve symptoms, okay? And like I said, it will also work for neurocomplex uh, SVT, okay? And uh, that was the agent we used for that patient that had the SVT um, that was not responding very well to the uh, uh, adenosine in the hospital, and it worked very well. Kept him out, started him on an oral dose, sent the guy home that day. What's our dosage we use? Typical dose is going to be a smaller dose of rapamil. Um, it's a pretty potent agent in terms of what it does in the heart. Uh, 2.5 to 5 milligrams, and we'll give this, um, you can give it IV push over a few minutes, okay? Um, over up to 5 minutes. And you can repeat this, but you don't have to repeat it very quickly, okay? It's not, it has a much longer half-life in terms of hours compared to adenosine with seconds. And this dose can be repeated every 15 to 30 minutes if the patient has not responded well. But the max dose we're going to give of verapamil is, is 30 milligrams. I've never seen anyone get 30 milligrams of IV verapamil before, okay, at a single session. Usually it's, it's going to slow the rate down pretty, pretty good when we, when we give this.
Well, what do we need to be careful with with this? Our precautions include hypotension, okay? Um, and there's some, some data that suggests that out of the calcium channel blockers that we have available for our use, uh, verapamil and diltiazem, verapamil causes more hypotension than diltiazem, although um, this is uh, up to debate by some per, uh, persons. Um, but nonetheless, we need to watch for blood pressure. And actually, some patients just take this agent to lower their blood pressure, okay, in tablet form. Okay, it's not, it's not uh, an uncommon medication for that indication. Also, uh, we probably need to avoid this drug in patients that have heart failure or left ventricular dysfunction, okay? It's been shown that basically chronic use of this medicine um, actually worsens mortality in that population, okay? Because verapamil tends to be very, in addition to negative, in, in addition to having negative chronotropic effects, okay, slowing the heart rate down, it also has very potent negative inotropic effects. So not only does it make it go slower, it decreases the squeeze, okay? And that is thrown patients into heart failure, okay? So I would avoid using verapamil if your patient has a history of left ventricular uh, uh, dysfunction, systolic dysfunction, what we call uh, 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 left-sided heart failure frequently, okay? And also in patients that have AFib with a fast ventricular rate and have this uh, Wolf-Parkinson-White uh, syndrome, and you guys, you won't know this now, but when you talk about EKGs, this is going to be significant. You're going to think about that. Oh, yeah, Hobbs talked about AFib, and he talked about um, people that had fast heart rates. But if they had this, WPW, we don't give AV nodal blocking agents, okay? You give them, and then you're going to have, you're going to have a, a, probably a cardiac arrest situation on your hands, okay? Something where AFib doesn't kill people, but if you give medicines, you can, you can, you can put them in a, in a bad situation, okay? So you have to know when and when not to give this stuff. It's very rare. I've only seen this a few times. I can count on my hands the amount of times I've seen WPW. It's not very common, okay? And usually it's a pretty much, if, you, if they do find it, it's a, it's a rhythm that they can go in and treat with radiofrequency ablation, ablation, okay? But unfortunately, people don't know they have this, and people die every year. I work with a nurse on one of the floors, on one of the cardiac floors. She had a 19-year-old son, um, just found this out, was going to have an ablated, died the week before he was going in for his ablation, went into ventricular arrhythmia at home and died, okay? So um, uh, we, don't want to, we don't want to cause that type of situation by giving an AV nodal blocking agent in someone with that uh, condition, okay? Also want to be careful giving this with other AV nodal blocking agents on top of them that have long half-lives, like beta blocker, like giving metoprolol and verapamil on top of each other, okay? Because you're going to get a, a significant effect on, on uh, uh, additive effect when you do that. Also in patients that have AV block or SA node dysfunction, um, uh, you want to be careful with that and we already mentioned the heart fair, okay? And you got to think about that. Well, geez, it looks like they're, they're bradycardic. We're not going to be giving rap mill anyways, okay? We're not going to want to slow them down anymore, okay? So um, e even if they do have AFib, we're really only using that to control the heart rate, not the atrial fibrillation. Okay, it's really not going to have much effect on that by itself. Okay, so we talked about adenosine, okay, and that's really a short-acting agent. Rapamil being a, uh, a longer-acting agent, what we call a calcium channel blocker. Now we're going to talk about metoprolol, and you've heard me mention this before, brand name of it's Lopressor, okay. This is what we call a beta blocker, and most beta blockers, virtually all of them, will end in OLOL, okay, so we have like a tenolol. Okay, metoprolol, esmolol, bisoprolol, bisindolol, all propranolol, one of the first ones that was developed and marketed. Okay, all in like that. And these block the beta receptors. Okay. Now, to the degree that they block those can vary with the different agents. Okay. And when I had the first diagrams up there when we talked about the sympathetic nervous system, and I had that diagram, and we showed propranolol, well, if you remember, propranolol went into both the lungs and of the heart and block those beta receptors. Okay, propranolol is a beta-1 and beta-2 receptor blocker or antagonist, okay? So not only will it slow down the heart rate and the force of contraction, but it'll, it'll also potentially cause bronchoconstriction when you give propranolol. 
That was one of the first ones that they brought out, right after the guy, the guy, there's a fellow actually won a uh, no, Nobel Prize for um, investigating and understanding the mechanism of these agents that they were being developed, beta blockers, okay? Um, pretty significant development because we use these medications for a lot of conditions and very useful. Okay. So what do they do? Well, they block these beta receptors, okay? And they block them to varying degrees. Um, this is a competitive blockade. So we need to keep giving these, okay, for them to work. So once that drug is sort of worn out, once it's sort of reached its period, uh, we talk about half-life where half of it's gone, where it's metabolized or cleared by the kidneys, as that concentration decreases, those receptor sites become unoccupied, and then your chemical stimulator, be it norepinephrine or epinephrine, whatever it is that's going to go work on those receptor sites, will go in and bind. Then you get the effect, okay? So let's think about that. Well, we need a relatively long agent if we want it to last all day. Well, unfortunately, metoprolol is not that long acting, okay? So we have to give that multiple times a day. Otherwise, our pressure is going to go back up or our heart rate is going to go back up in the evening, okay? Especially when we give it IV, we'll need to give larger doses because we don't have any in the body, um, or not larger doses, but more repeated doses until we get a response. And the action of this depends on the level of adrenergic influence, okay? Um, so, so, we, so we have some agents like propranolol that'll stimulate beta-1s and beta, or block beta-1s and beta-2s, excuse me. Metoprolol, okay, which we're talking about now, is really only a beta-1 blocker. It's what we call a selective, a cardio-selective beta blocker, okay? So for most of the doses that we use, we don't get beta effects. That's pretty good. So people have mild lung disease, we can use this drug pretty safely and really get no, no adverse effect because we're not going to block beta-2s in the lungs with metoprolol for the most part. Okay. This will happen as we use large doses of metoprolol. Then it starts to lose its selectivity and you start to block those beta-2s. Okay. And then you start to run into lung issues with um, patients that have lung disease. So why do we use this? Well, we use it for um, refractory um, uh, SVT, okay, paroxysmal SVT, comes and goes, uh, supraventricular tachycardia. Um, it's going to be a longer-acting agent than adenosine, okay? So it's going to be like verapamil. This drug, we could have gave that also. It's going to stay around for a longer time. It's going to stay around for hours, okay? Um, we'll use it for VTAC and VFib when we want to block the, the, beta, the beta receptors, basically. Okay. Sometimes we, we, we mentioned that sometimes arrhythmias are induced by stimulation of, catac of catecholamine stimulation by stimulating the beta-1 receptor, increasing automaticity. Certain patients will actually give them a beta blocker that have ventricular tachycardia and will, will be able to decrease their rate of, of VT. Okay, so we'll use that. Uh, you won't routinely use that in the field for that, but patients will be on a beta blocker for that. Uh, we also use it after patients have had a heart attack. We, we love beta blockers in people that have had a, a myocardial infarction, okay, um, for multiple reasons. For acute myocardial infarction, we liked it. It's been shown to decrease infarct size, okay. So we talk about people having a heart attack. We get this plaque. This plaque builds up, and we got our cap here. And due to shear forces and other things, you get this rupture. This goo, I call it goo, that's a medical term, comes out. But we got platelets come up. And these platelets don't like that rough edge, okay, and they hook up on here. And you get a thrombus to develop, okay, and you can't get your blood through here, right? Okay. So then over here, wherever you got, you got your heart over here. It's not getting its, it's not getting its, its blood. It's not getting its, its fuel, oxygen in the blood. Okay. Well, so you're going to have all this area. It's going to be damaged because it's not getting blood flow. What beta blockers can do in the acute setting of a myocardial infarction is actually decrease the infarct size. Okay. So once once you get that damage, once once you have that heart attack, that tissue that that that's damaged that turns to scar tissue. Okay. And that that never returns. That's damaged forever. Okay, so all MIs are bad. You're going to have some damage. It's, you're not going to have functioning myocardium wherever that is. So you want to limit that size. Okay, so maybe by making that smaller, that would be a good thing.
So we give beta blockers to help limit infarct size because we're decreasing that force of contraction, right? We're de decreasing that rate of contraction. So by doing that, we're decreasing myocardial oxygen demand. The heart is working less. Thus, you need less fuel, okay? Less fuel, we're able to decrease the infarct size frequently. So we use it for that. But even more important than that is we use beta blockers after pa patients have their heart attack. We continue them on it as long as they can tolerate it with their blood pressure and their heart rate if they're not too low when they go home for months, up to years after that. Because what happens is your body senses that damage and says, oh, I don't like that. And it starts to secrete, you get more, you get increased levels of catecholamines because it wants to make, it wants to sort of repair that, it wants to make your heart get bigger, okay? Well, a bigger, baggier heart isn't better in the long run. It causes heart failure. So we found out by blocking these beta receptors chronically, we can prevent that from happening. But in addition, since we have that increased, increased levels of catecholamines, we have increased beta-1 effect, increased automaticity. Guess what? That means more arrhythmias. Patients that are on beta blockers that get discharged from the hospital survive with improved rates, okay, it improves mortality because there's less sudden death at home, okay, because we're blocking these bad effects from our body's own epi and norepi, okay. We're trying to give more of these because we want, our body wants to fix it. It, can, it. it knows that, okay, but we block those effects and we make people live longer. So we routinely, and actually now it's a, um, sort of a, a joint commission on accreditation of hospitals requirement of hospitals to basically discharge patients that have had a heart attack on these class of medications because we know that they live longer okay and that's good death is bad so post-infarct protection so what's our dosage that we're going to give to these patients that we're using it back to when we're talking about tachycardia okay which is try to slow the ventricular rate okay well, our dosage that we're going to use is 5 milligrams. It comes in a 5 milligram per 5 ml vial. Okay, we're going to get 5 milligrams. You can give this um, over uh, 5 minutes, every 5 minutes. Typically, we'll give a series of up to 15 milligrams routinely. Okay, and usually that's going to be adequate to get your heart rate slowed down uh, pretty good. Some patients are going to require more. Some patients are going to require less. It's metabolized in the liver. We don't have to worry about renal with this drug, okay? Um, we don't really worry about liver disease and, unless it's end stage. You're not going to be really dealing with that predominantly. Um, it is metabolized by what we call a certain system called the cytochrome P450 system. And this probably relates why one, some people would need, need less even though they may have a, a fast heart rate. Some patients may require 10, 15 milligrams. Some patients may require 2.5 to 5 and have an adequate response with that, okay? Um, one of these isoenzymes called uh, 2D6 is what is responsible for this. And interesting enough, 10% of Caucasians do not have a lot of 2D6 or have none. Okay, So a little of this drug is going to go a long way. 2D6 is the same thing, just a side marker. It's the same thing metabolizes codeine. Codeine by itself is inactive. If you have no 2D6, I give you codeine, it will, I can give you a bucket full of that, and it's, you're not going to have any effect. You have to metabolize that first to active ingredients to make codeine work in your body. Okay, and a lot of people don't realize that. So when some people say they don't get any response to T number three, that's very possible that they don't because they're actually not, some, about 10% of the population uh, are not able to convert that to an active drug. Okay. So it's probably why patients um, respond uh, to different varying doses and varying do doses of metabolism in the body. Where, where do we need to be careful with uh, beta blockers? Um, and specific to metoprolol, which is the most commonly used agent um, out in the field in terms of beta blocker. Cardiac failure, heart failure, okay? You give big doses, you give big doses of beta blockers to heart failure patients, and guess what? Well, we're, we're decreasing that force of contraction, and they're already weak. They have a weak force of contraction. We make it worse. You make, them, you make their heart failure worse, or you make them have a heart failure exacerbation. Okay, so you stay away from big doses of beta blockers for rate control and if they have heart failure. Okay, systolic dysfunction, left ventricular dysfunction, low ejection fraction. You stay away from that. If their ejection fraction is good, it's okay. Okay, if their ejection fraction is bad, heart failure, okay, systolic heart failure, you stay away from beta blockers. 
Then you say, wait a second, Hobbs, I thought they were giving beta blockers to these patients. And you know what? When I, when I got out of school, it was contraindicated. You don't give a beta blocker to a patient with systolic heart failure, low ejection fraction. Then we did these studies and found out, lo and behold, like of a lot of other things since I've graduated, these things make patients live longer. They actually improve their cardiac function if you start them at low doses and titrate them up over months. So we start them at these micro doses with heart failure, okay, in the clinic, okay, and we have them take them for months, okay, like with metoprolol, like 12.5 milligrams, okay, small dose. We have them take them for months per day. That's